Hi everyone, Terry Walbrock here. Before we start the show today, just a quick little announcement. I have partnered up with the Shift Network and uh, we'll be sharing just some amazing, uh, wonderful free resources, upcoming free video events, um, courses, and so forth with many different healers from across the globe. Um, sharing it on the Healing Place Podcast Facebook page, on my LinkedIn page, but also if you go to my website, terrywellbrock.com, which is T-E-R-I-W-E-L-L-B-R-O-C-K.com, and just hit subscribe or fill out the pop-up um, that comes up, I will send you my monthly Hope for Healing newsletter, and I'm going to start sending out weekly uh, invitations for these varying events. Um, so, and also I'll, I have some partnerships with previous podcast guests who are offering uh, special coupon codes and discount codes for many of their programs as well to save 20% or 50% or whatever it may be. So I'll be sending those out too through the newsletter and through my email uh, connection list. So be sure to join that. Um, I don't ever spam it, so just know that. Um, it will just be things to help you along your healing journey or guide you to other resources if you're a trauma advocate. All right, now for the show. Oh my gosh, this is full of so much information. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome everybody to the Healing Place podcast. I'm your host, Terry Welbrock. So excited to have with me today, David Contorno, and he is founder of E-Powered Benefits. And we're here to have some really interesting conversations. We just chatted for a few minutes before I hit record and so excited for him to share his expertise. So welcome. Thank you so much, Terry. Excited to be here. Yes, for sure. So I don't even know what to go back to because I, I just sat here going, <laughs> shaking my head my, with my mouth hanging open, like in agreement of so much that you were talking about. Um, and I told you, you know, our this audience of this show is uh, a mix of trauma warriors, those who have survived trauma and are thriving after trauma, and uh, those who are trauma advocates who work to guide others along their healing journey. Um, so certainly what you have to share is going to resonate with many. Excellent. Yeah, well, I'd like to just give a little bit of background of where my perspective sits. And then I think I can really bring this in, in particular to what I see from our perspective, especially with people that have high healthcare needs, and especially if it's in mental health, which I imagine that's a, a particular need of trauma victims. But I'd be willing to bet that a lot of people who are seeking mental health have seen um, the networks within their health plans get smaller and smaller. And the time period from which they can even get an appointment has gone up substantially. And now your first could be weeks or even months down the road because they're so busy and, and overwhelmed. Why is that occurring? And, and there's reasons, there's very specific reasons behind it. But um, for all of my life, uh, at least uh, most all of my adult life, and even some of my adolescent life, I've been in uh, insurance. And most of that has been health insurance and employee benefits. And for the first 20 years of that career, my role was advising employers on picking the best among the Blue Crosses, the Uniteds, the Cygnas, and Aetnas, and helping them manage that and educate that to their employee population and the families of those employees. But at least nine out of 10 uh, years of those first 20 years, um, the meetings that I had with those employers and those employees were pretty consistent. Your costs are going up, 
and your benefits are going down. In other words, you're going to have more money coming out of your paycheck for this coverage. And at the same time, you're going to have more money coming out of your pocket when you use this coverage. That means you and your employer are perpetually paying more money and getting less and less and less. And we've just seen that happen. One of the statistics that drives me to take this kind of non-traditional approach is the following. The number one cause of bankruptcy in the US is medical bills. And that probably doesn't surprise most people. But over two-thirds of those people that file for bankruptcy because of medical bills had health insurance. Now, if you think of insurance in general, it's designed to do one thing and one thing only, which is protect us from catastrophic financial loss. Health insurance has been perverted into this product that now the average American actually goes bankrupt when they use it. The average out-of-pocket in the U.S. before the health plan picks up 100% is currently sitting at $5,123 whereas the average savings account balance in the US is between 500 and $1,000. That means for most of America, if you get a bad stubbed toe, you might be filing for bankruptcy. And that's pretty scary. So I couldn't do it anymore. It, it got too difficult. And I, it just it wasn't what I wanted my career or my life to be. So I started to ask really hard questions. And <laughs> actually, the question consisted of one word, three letters, why? I started to ask everybody why for the first 20 years of my career have costs gone up at a staggering rate and benefits gone down at a staggering rate more so than any other sector of our economy with one exception, which is college tuition. And I'd actually argue there's a lot of uh, similarities between why college tuition inflates as much as healthcare costs, but let's stay focused on healthcare costs. Again, remember that in the, in the most of my capacity, I'm working with employers. And so I try to explain to them why are we getting the results we're getting? And it's, it's really simple. The average broker who's advising the employer is paid on commission. So as the client's rates go up, how much commission the broker makes goes up. The next link in the chain is the insurance company. And, and uh, you, anyone can Google this, but part of the Affordable Care Act, which was passed in 2010, also known as Obamacare, instituted something called a medical loss ratio provision. And you can Google that phrase, medical loss ratio provision. And it says, and it was well intended, but it says that every health insurer in the U.S. must spend 85 cents of every dollar they collect in premium on actual health care costs for the people on their plan. And the premise was, we're going to limit that profit of that uh, insurance company and force them to put more of their dollars towards the health care of the people on their plan. Sounds good, but here's the problem. That means they get to keep 15% for their own overhead and their own profit. Well, 15% of a bigger number, of course, results in a bigger number, but the only way to get that number bigger, which is premium, is for underlying healthcare costs to go up. If they actually kept healthcare costs down or reduced healthcare costs, they would have to return untold amount of money to the people on their plan. Anyone on this uh, listening to this gotten a refund from their health insurance carrier recently? Nope. <laughs> Probably not. So the insurance company actually makes more money as medical costs go up, contrary to most people's belief. And then, of course, the local doctors, hospitals, and drug companies are getting most of that money, so they like for costs to go up. So the reason why healthcare costs in this country keep going up, at least in the employer market, is because everybody makes more money as costs go up. Interesting side note, <clears throat> United Healthcare, which is the largest insurer in, in the U.S., about $240 billion company. When you look at their health insurance business unit, they have two big buckets. Bucket number one is what they call commercial. That's all your individual plans, your ACA plans, your employer plans. And then bucket number two is, is government, which is typically Medicare and Medicaid. In the employer plans, all the dynamics I just explained occur where higher costs equal more profit. 
But in the Medicare market, which United, as you probably know, partnered with AARP, so they're pretty big in the Medicare market. When you go off of Medicare and onto a Medicare plan with a private insurer, the government sends that insurance company a monthly fee stipend every month. And now that insurance company has incentives to keep costs down because they do, in fact, on the Medicare side, get to keep the difference between what they get from the government and what you spend. Interestingly, Medicare costs keep going down in that market and their profit keeps going up. But on the commercial side, costs keep going up and their profit keeps going up. So the notion that they're unable to control costs is simply not true because they can do it over here. They're just not incentivized to do it for the majority of people that are likely listening to this. So our healthcare system really is one about incentives. And if you look at who makes money when, all of the results we've been getting for decades becomes pretty clear. Wow. Again, I just sit here going, <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, as someone who, well, my mom's on, on Medicare. And so I, I, I find it fascinating, again, for myself, I have my plan, which is a private I pay, pay for it myself so much a month and, uh, and it's a high deductible plan. So I think my deductible is five or $6,000 for the year per individual. And then my mom, who's 86 years old, is on a, on a Medicare plan and she'll have to have a test done zero out of pocket. If she'll, anything she has done, she has covered and it's no, no charge at all. Where me, on the other hand, going through this health journey the last year, Oh my gosh, 10 over 10,000 closer to $20,000 out of pocket that I've spent on labs and tests and doctors and specialists and they you know they keep sending me in prescriptions and oh well you have to meet your deductible first and I had told you right before we hit record they had sent me uh for a lab test to our local hospital and they the hospital called the schedule and said it'll be $3,000 out of your pocket up front. Like you just have to pay it. And I was like, I don't, I don't just have $3,000 to write a check. And so I said, well, is there anywhere else I can have it done? And they said, oh yeah, Island imagery or something like that. And it was a third of the cost. Yep. And so, yes, yeah, so do you want to, we, we discussed a little bit beforehand. Do you want to address that? Yeah. So there's, again, all these incentives, and this is where, I make some people uncomfortable because for some reason we, and I think this is largely Americans, although maybe not specifically, but we put doctors up on a pedestal. We somehow think that they're better human beings and they're going to make decisions only in the interest of the patient because of the Hippocratic oath they took or the excessive schooling they went through or whatever. I'm going to make an interesting analogy. I actually think politicians and doctors share a lot in common. I think that when someone first decided to run for their little town mayoral election, they were very bright eyed and bushy tailed and they wanted to do good for their citizens and help their community and help their town. And maybe they did. And maybe that made them popular. And so they moved up the ranks. Maybe they went to the House or maybe they went to Senate even. But all of a sudden someone comes to them and says, you know, You've been pushing this agenda over here, and we're willing to support you and make it happen, but you have to sacrifice this agenda over here. And then all of a sudden, now these perverse incentives start to come into play. And are there some politicians who always do what's right for other people and not themselves? Of course. Are there some that only do what's right for them and not for everyone else? Of course. But I think the majority sit in the middle, including doctors, where they have to make daily decisions that I'm going to talk to you about in a minute. Do I do what's right for me and my family, or do I do what's right for my patient? And those two things are constantly 
at opposition with each other. So let's talk about a few of those because this is where anybody who's receiving healthcare can start to understand some of the dynamics. And if you think about it, it's really no different than some other things. Uh, for example, if you go to buy a house, wouldn't you feel uncomfortable if the real estate agent was representing both you, the buyer and the seller? Because you know, as a seller, they want to get the highest price. As a buyer, they want to pay the lowest price, right? So the same person operating that space, one of the two are going to win, but not both. They can't, right? So let's talk about how doctors are compensated because this is, again, it all comes down to how people are paid. It came down to how I was paid as a broker to employers. And I changed that completely to a way that's fully aligned with the employer. And oh my gosh, even though I was trying to do what's right before, even though I even thought I was doing what's right before, when you align the incentives, it changes everything. I don't care how good of a person you are, but the two metrics that impact most doctors pay the most is number one, patient volume. The more patients a doctor sees in a day, the more money they make by the health system they work for. Of course, the more patients they see in a day, the less time they spend per patient. The other lesser known metric, and anyone I encourage you to ask an American doctor about this if you're unsure that I'm telling the truth, is something called an RVU or a relative value unit. And it's a measurement of how much money and revenue they're helping generate in other parts of the healthcare system. So Terry, when you needed that test, if I were your prescribing doctor, it's in my interest for you to go to the hospital that I work for where that test, imaging test, is going to be the most expensive. And maybe I disassociate the harm I'm doing because maybe I say, eh, Terry has insurance. Insurance is going to pay for most of that. Well, two problems with that. Number one, as you noted, most people have this really big out-of-pocket they have to meet first. So in some cases, you may have little to no coverage because you have to meet that out-of-pocket. Problem number two, who pays for insurance? You do. So I tell people all the time, <clears throat> you have two choices for how to pay for healthcare. You can reach into your wallet and pay for it now, or you can throw down your insurance card and pay for it later. Those are the only two options. There's no free ride in this healthcare game. And which one do you think doctors and hospitals prefer? Pay now or pay later? Pay now. And what a lot of people don't understand is that even though every insurance company negotiates a discount, that discount is off of, number one, a price that nobody pays ever, ever, ever. It's called Charge Master. It's literally never paid. And number two has been intentionally inflated because they know they're going to have to give a discount. So I'll use an example that I use frequently that people can relate to. Imagine if you walked into Kohl's and it said, everything is 60% off. And you said, 60% off of what though? I don't, I don't see a starting price or an ending price. And they responded, oh no, don't worry. You're going to get 60% off, but you're not going to know what it's off of until you've taken it home, taken the tags off, worn it and washed it and can't return it. Then we're going to tell you the starting price. Now you and I both know that if I'm having to give people a 60% off discount, but I'm not having to give them the price up front, then I can charge whatever I want. So I can charge a price that's five times what I otherwise would have charged and still get more because even after the discount. And there's an interesting story, and I don't mean to go on too much of a tangent, but the head of Apple retail sales went over to JCPenney. They were in big trouble. And JCPenney was known for having all these discounts and coupons. And the, if you know Apple, if you know Apple at all, there none of those exist. You pay the same price every day, whether you go to Best Buy, the Apple store, it doesn't matter. And so the head of, the head of sales, when they went to be CEO of JCPenney, said, let's get rid of all these things. Let's just 
drop the price to what it would have been after all those discounts. Now they don't need to worry about coupons and someone paying more and so everyone's going to pay that better price. Their sales plummeted. Americans love to get a deal or a perceived deal. But let me tell you guys something. Your insurance price is the highest price paid in healthcare, period. So we have brokers that are incentivized and advising employers and individuals who buy private insurance. But as your rates go up, how much money they make goes up. Insurance companies make more money as your costs and your underlying healthcare costs go up. Doctors make more money as they get you out of the office quicker and get you to where the cost of care is the most expensive. But let me tell you something interesting about healthcare. The most expensive care is usually the lowest quality care. There's actually an inverse relationship between cost and quality. The reason is that is frequency. The more frequently a doctor, like for the, let's use that imaging. If you go to the hospital for that imaging, they do lots of things. And even though you're just going in for an MRI, they have to cover their costs for their emergency department, for their ICU, for their maternity ward, all these things, which everyone has to pay. But if you go to an imaging center where all they do is MRIs and X-rays, they don't have any of those things. And so even though they're using the same MRI machine and you're getting the same MRI, here's the price difference. We've seen MRIs at hospital-based facilities. On the low end, 3,000, I'd say the average is probably like four to 6,000. We've seen as high as 11 or 12,000. We have gone out to imaging centers around the US for the benefit of our clients. We have a couple thousand of them. And our average price for an MRI is between three and 600 bucks. And so when we build a properly functioning health plan, we really want to reward people. And so we don't just say to them, hey, you have your deductible. So $500 MRI is going to cost you less than a $3,000 MRI. We actually go a step further. The plans that we build say to that employee, if you get that $500 MRI, your employer health plan will pay 100%. Because if I'm the employer, would I rather pay 50% of $5,000 and leave my employee owing 2,500 bucks and my plan paying 2,500 bucks? Or would I prefer to spend 100% of 500 bucks and leave my employee owing absolutely nothing? So as we start to think about these dynamics, and I want to bring this over to what I imagine trauma victims are are seeing Uh, on a regular basis. Let's talk about mental health. That is an area that has been severely suppressed and depressed over the last 10 years. And the need for mental health help has gone up, especially since the pandemic as well. So if I'm an insurance carrier and I'm controlling coverage and networks, remember what I said that as an insurance company and most insurance companies are publicly traded, as my claims go up, That's the only way that I can raise my premium. And only by raising my premium do I increase my profit. So let's talk about someone who's struggling with mental health issues, depression, anxiety, whatever the case may be. The most effective and first line of care is typically some sort of outpatient mental health. Maybe it's a psychiatrist or a psychologist, a trauma expert, and I'm going once a week, but I'm otherwise carrying on with my daily life. What does that visit cost? 100 bucks, 200 bucks a session? Not really substantial in the scope of healthcare. But if I make it really difficult for you to get that care, what often winds up happening? The symptoms increase, the severity of the problem increases, and all of a sudden I need maybe intensive outpatient, but often inpatient care, which is better for the insurance company better for the broker who's advising the employer because that sends costs up, profit up, commission up, 
everything goes up. The same thing has occurred at primary care. Do you know that in primary care, it's an average of 21 days between calling your primary care doctor and getting to see them? Now, I'm a female, but I live with females. And I know if my wife had a urinary tract infection where all she needed is an antibiotic, she's not going to wait 21 days to see her doctor. And then once you get to that doctor, you know the average time you get face-to-face -face with that doctor? It's between seven and 11 minutes because they have to see their 20, 30, or 40 patients a day. They have to get you out the door. So uh, primary care has also been depressed. And they incentivize those doctors in a way. So if I came into you, Terry, if you were my primary care doctor and I came into you with a bad back, my most profitable path as a primary care doctor is to first of all, write you a script for an opioid because I wanna get you out the door and feeling okay. But of course, as you probably know, we have an opioid epidemic in this country, the huge majority of which started with a legitimate prescription taken as prescribed and paid for by their health plan. And then I'm gonna refer you to my buddy, the back surgeon. Now, you've heard the saying to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. What does everything look like to a back surgeon? Right. Back surgery, right? Do you know in the US, the most likely by far statistical outcome of back surgery is another back surgery. But as a primary care doctor, I got you out of my office super quick by giving you that script. And then I sent you to where the most expensive care is most likely to occur, which all of which benefits me. So this is why we're seeing these dynamics. And when you talk about mental health or abuse or trauma, those are areas that have just been depressed and suppressed with intent for the sole purpose of getting you to places where the bigger care is more likely to occur. So what do you do to address this? Because if you're an employee, you have zero control over your employer's plan, right? That's made up in some ivory tower, especially if you work for some big company and they think they're getting the advice of the big insurance companies and the big brokers and the big health systems. Guys, I'm going to tell you in healthcare, bigger is not better. Actually, bigger typically means they're more bought into those perverse incentives. They're more compelled by them. They're more addicted to them financially. And it's really interesting because we have clients all over the country. And do you know how hard it is for me to convince somebody that Cleveland Clinic is almost like one of the worst places you can go for most stuff? Not true of everything. Okay. There are some things they do really well. Same thing with the Mayo Clinic. Same thing with Sloan Kettering in New York City. Same thing with Cedar sinai in LA. I will tell you, there is no such thing as a general hospital that does everything good. They become a jack of all trades and a master of none. So the biggest advice that I can give, and then I'll look for some guidance and feedback from you, Terry, to continue the conversation, is changing those dynamics. So let's talk about a different type of primary care that I have become a huge believer in. It's called direct primary care. Now, some people confuse this with concierge medicine. It's very different. A concierge doctor charges a very high fee and still bills insurance. So when they bill insurance, they have all those incentives that I just talked about. And there's one other dynamic that I didn't mention. When doctors are trying to collect from insurance companies, typically 30 to 40% of their time is spent filling out paperwork and calling the insurance company to get paid. In a direct primary care model, these are doctors that left the traditional fee-for-service system in most cases. There are a few that are going right into this at a medical school, but most not. Most 
saw the perverse incentives, they couldn't sleep at night anymore, and they left. And in a direct primary care model, they charge a monthly membership fee that covers all your primary care. There's no copay when you go, they're never billing insurance, and more importantly, the number of patients they have assigned to them is way less, usually a fifth or even less of what the traditional primary care doctor has because they don't have those patient volume incentives. They don't have RVUs they have to meet. And so my direct primary care doctor is in Chicago. I happen to live just outside of Charlotte. You might say, well, that's not really convenient, but the reason we're so accustomed to having to go into doctors is because until the pandemic anyway, doctors didn't get paid if you didn't physically go in there. And so that urinary tract infection is something that should easily be able to be treated over the phone by a doctor who knows you, knows your history and has seen you before. But if they don't get paid for doing it, they're gonna make you come in. The two alternatives is telemedicine where people speak to a doctor they've never spoken to before, will never speak to again, has no idea about your health history or any other medications you're taking or the emergency room. Neither one of those are really good. So in a direct primary care relationship, all those incentives are gone. And if you ask a direct primary care doctor, what has being a direct primary care doctor given you that you didn't have before? The number one answer you get is time. I have the time to see my patient the same day or the next day, spend as much time with them as necessary to diagnose the problem. And now that primary care doctor, instead of sending you to the back surgeon, is going to send you to the physical therapist, for example. So um, the, the interesting statistic, if primary care were properly funded in the United States, like a direct primary care model, for 82% of people in this country, that small monthly membership fee would cover 100% of their healthcare. In other words, if you had a relationship with a direct primary care doctor that had the ability to give you unlimited time, their training and expertise is such that 82% of America would never need another doctor. We go to specialists right away because we've been trained to. If we have a skin issue, we go to a dermatologist. If we have an anxiety issue, we go to a therapist. If we have diabetes, we go to an endocrinologist. But unless those things are extreme, your primary care doctor is perfectly trained and suited to care for you, sometimes even better than the specialist. So the first thing that I would encourage people to do is think about how your doctor's paid. We about that in the scope of a car salesman, right? We know they're paid commission, so we know they want to sell us their car for as much as possible. But we're not thinking about this in the scope of doctors. And I think we need to start to change that because at the end of the day, we're our own best advocate and we need to be in healthcare, both from a clinical perspective, but also from a financial perspective. Because if you get through whatever trauma was caused 30 years ago, and then you're now left bankrupt, causing another trauma, <laughs> that's really no better off. You've just traded one trauma for another. But at the end of the day, really good care doesn't cost a lot of money, or at least it doesn't have to. And there are ways to access both cost and quality that is just not readily accessible to most of America. Right. Oh, my gosh. Well, one of the things that immediately popped into my head is going through this um, this mold toxicity journey of mine. I just and, and being in online support groups and so forth and, and talking to so many people who have gone through it, so many said you know, my doctor just didn't know Western medicine just doesn't know that there's, you know, that my doctor just didn't have the time and kept throwing these pills at me or kept having me do these labs and tests and blah, blah, blah. And everything came back normal. So now I see an alternative doctor, or now I see a functional medicine doctor, or now I see how do, how do those type of doctors, because they see more and more people moving in that direction and willing to pay 
like money out of their pocket to see a functional medicine doctor, do they fall into this, this category of a primary care or are they starting to? They certainly can. I mean, we, um, often embrace like the holistic you okay. know, whole person medicine, which if you ever see an OD uh, uh, after a doctor, that is a, that is an MD who actually has functional medicine training. So a lot of people think they're not a full MD. They're actually the opposite. They're a full MD plus additional training. Um, so that's one thing that you can do. You know, it, it's an interesting um, analogy that I give you know, you just heard me describe the, the Western healthcare system, particularly in the US. But I often talk about how doctors were compensated in ancient Chinese medicine. And it's completely the opposite. It's also an extreme, but it's an extreme in the other direction. In ancient Chinese medicine, doctors were only paid when their patients were healthy. And the second their patient got sick, they stopped getting paid. And if the doctor needed to do some sort of surgical procedure, it was actually viewed as a failing of the doctor to control the underlying condition. Think about how radically opposite that is from our healthcare system. But imagine for a minute if doctors stopped getting paid when you were sick and they only started to get paid again when you were healthy. That, I mean, that would be a radical 180 in our, our healthcare system. Right. Now, I adore my doctor and uh, she, she leans more holistically, but we just had this. And, and it's so fascinating what you just talked about is in, in finding the root cause. I, my TSH for thyroid numbers had, had doubled. And so they'd gone 2.98 to 4.99. And so it was the high end of normal. And so, oh, you need to take this prescription. I'm not a medication fan. I'm not anti-prescription or, or pharmacy, but it's just not for me. If, I, if there's a side effect, I'll have it. So I was like, no, I really don't think I want to go that way. So I'm going to look at some alternative, more holistic. Let's get to the root cause. Like, why is this happening? Why is this happening? And so just two days ago, I had had some labs run on my TSH again after implementing all of these natural, more holistic um, options, and they dropped to 2.83. And so it's even better than it was originally. So to me, I'm like, all right, see, getting to the root cause. I love that philosophy. I mean, it, at least that works for me. So it, no, it is something that needs to change. You really, uh, I remember I was rolling one of these plans out at one of our clients a few years ago, that was a car dealership. And this woman who was actually Asian, um, comes up with this list of medications. She's like, these are the medications I'm on. How are these going to be covered under the new plan? And I said to her, I'm happy to check that for you, but like, are you, are you doing anything to get off of some of these medications? And she's like, no, 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 no. I absolutely need these. These are important. I can't live my life. And I said, I'm going to give you an analogy, a car analogy. You taking all these medications, and maybe not all of them, but a lot of them, would be like if I came into your car dealership and I said to you, my car is making this thumping sound every time I drive, thump, 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 thump. And you said, oh, we can fix that. Here's a pair of headphones. Put the headphones on and you won't hear the thumping anymore. And that's what most medicines do is they mask the symptoms. So, and there was a commercial, I haven't seen it recently, although I don't watch much TV, but a couple of years ago, there was this commercial for a drug called Linzess, L-I-N-Z-E-S-S. Linzess is for opioid induced constipation. Okay. So that means you have this pain that your doctor's unable to solve. So they're giving you opioids to mask the pain. And those opioids besides potential addiction, are causing constipation. So here's another medication to fix the constipation that the opioids are causing because we can't fix the underlying issue. Now, is that true in all cases? Certainly not. If you're type 1 diabetic, 
right. you need insulin. If you're a type two diabetic, however, you can usually be taken off insulin when you make other modifications in your life. So is the doctor just saying, here's your medication, or is the doctor saying, here's the medication, but this is meant to be short-term. Let's focus on what we can do to make your life better. So you don't need this medication anymore. Right. But doc, in the scope of the average doctor who's paid in the traditional way by Blue Cross United Signetna, they're paid in a way that they simply don't have the time to do that. They never will unless the system fundamentally changes. So my recommendation, whether you have health insurance or not, whether you're on Medicare or Medicaid or not, is find a direct primary care provider. There's a website called dpcfrontier.net. And there's a listing of DPCs around the country. Um, it's not a full list, but it's pretty good. Um, my recommendation is that you go with the green dots, which are full DPCs. I, my belief is if you go with a hybrid practice, they're trying to capitalize on the Netflix monthly subscription model, but they're still seeing patients with insurance, which means all those same things still exist. And they'll probably impact you because you're walking in the same doorway as everyone else. Go with a pure DPC and give it a try. Most DPCs will give you a consult at no cost. It's the way healthcare is supposed to be. You walk in, you're unrushed. Here And DPCs are not as prevalent. So some of our clients have to travel. And we don't do DPC in every plan, but we do when it's embraced. But think about this. When you go to your average doctor, let's say your current doctor is 10 minutes down the road. What happens when you get there? Are you going to be brought in right away? No, you're going to sit in a waiting room. Who's around you in that waiting room? Lots of other sick people, right? So finally, 30 minutes past your appointment time, you finally get called. Now you're like, okay, I'm going to be seen. Nope, you're going to be waiting just in a different location for a little while. And there was a Seinfeld episode on this, I think. Um, so now you're going to wait in there. And then who comes in first? Not the doctor. It's a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner, right? And so now they're going to ask you some things so that the doctor spends less time when they come in. And the doctor comes in reading the notes that the physician assistant just wrote five minutes beforehand. And they're like, how can I help you? But I only have seven minutes. So let's make this quick. And then you leave and then you do the checkout process. So it was 10 minutes to get there. It was 45 minutes to see your doctor, 15 minutes with your doctor, 15 minutes to check out, 10 minutes to drive back home. That's an hour and a half roughly, right? Let's pretend your direct primary care doctor is 30 minutes away. So triple the drive. When you get to DPC, there's going to be no one else in the waiting room, which is better for you health-wise. You're not going to wait or not wait much at all. Your doctor is going to come in, not with a physician assistant, but the actual doctor. And so, and then you're going to have as much time as you need to actually address the issue. So even if you spend 30 or 40 minutes, which is what, four five, six times more time than you would spend with your traditional doctor, you're still back to work in the same or less time with more time with your doctor, even though your commute was triple the time. So it changes everything. And, and I'll say one other thing, and I get this all the time. I hear people all the time who say, but my doctor's great. I go, oh, well, tell me what, what makes them great. The number one, two, there's two answers I get most common. I've been going to him for years. Okay. Uh, not sure that's a quality, but, or he's really nice. Now I use the analogy. There's a show it's not on anymore called house. It was on Fox and that he was a, ass of a person. He was not a nice person, but gosh darn it, was he a good doctor? I'd rather have someone who's not nice and a really good doctor over someone who has amazing bedside manner, but their clinical abilities are questionable at best. So we're not looking at quality. And when it comes to a surgeon, why are we not looking at infection rates, readmission rates, 
mortality rates. <laughs> How about uh, if they're an orthopedic surgeon and they're putting knees in, there are some surgeons who put a knee in and it lasts five years on average and others last 20 years. Where do you want to be going? Like no one's looking, we, we do more research on the vacuum cleaner we're going to buy on Amazon than we do the open heart surgeon yes. who's going to crack <laughs> open our chest. And it's even so if true. we look for it, it's hard to find. You know, if you Google the quality of your doctor, you're most likely going to find one of two things, either self-reported or paid for advertisement by that doctor or patient reviews that are like, he was a good doctor, or he's really nice, or, you know, he looks like Dr. McDreamy from Grey's Anatomy. None of those things are telling right. quality. Well, um, and I just want to put a big asterisk by what you're saying in, in speaking as a trauma survivor and warrior, I had to learn to have my own voice and that my voice was valued. And so please, anyone who's listening, be your own advocate, ask the questions, do the research, don't be afraid to, to look for someone new and, and keep searching. And um, even through the frustration, because you can find, you can find the compassionate caretakers that are out there. Yeah, you can. And if you work for the right employer, and they're willing to find the right advisor, because there's for a while, it was just me and my team doing this, but it's expanded. And we help teach the industry in a lot of ways. Podcasts like this is part of how I get the message out. But we have the most expensive healthcare system in the world on a per capita basis. And it is grossly more expensive than even the second most expensive country, which happens to be France. But what a lot of people don't understand is we're getting really bad outcomes for that. Do you know, before COVID, preventable medical errors was the third leading cause of death. Heart disease was one, cancer was two. Preventable medical errors, 600,000 people die each year from preventable medical errors in the US. Now let's put this into perspective. Can you imagine if 600,000 people died each year in plane crashes, right. nobody would fly. Or if 600,000 people got bit by a shark in the ocean, nobody would go in the ocean but we walk into our hospitals every single day knowing that. That's now COVID overtook that. So now preventable medical errors is fourth, at least for the time being, but 600,000 people die each year from preventable medical errors. So you need to be your advocate. You're absolutely right, Terry. You have the most to gain, you have the most to lose. And I know when you're dealing with a serious medical condition, whether it's trauma or cancer or heart disease, like those are some scary words and it's hard for us to think on our own. But I would argue that that's when we need to do it the most. That's when we have the most to gain or lose. There are resources out there, but treat it like you would anything else you buy. Care about cost, yeah. care about quality, and make the best value decision that you can. And understand that a lot of the players that you're trusting now are paid in a way that doesn't align with your interests. And that just gets you to ask different questions. That's yeah. all. I was just going to say, question, question, question. I had a horrific rash as part of this mold toxicity. And uh, my doctor was going to put me on a steroid. And I just read something that said steroids plus mold, not good combo. And I was like, mm, I don't think this is good. And me and she whipped her laptop open and typed some stuff. And she was like, oh, well, look at that. And so then she was like, let's do this instead. And so I love, again, that's why I loved about her. But how many doctors are going to do that? I mean, truly. No, right. Most don't. Most are not given the time. It's right. not. You know, it's this really is not largely about bad people. It's about good people in a bad system. Yeah. And the system needs a complete overhaul. But it 
what the system, we do have really good doctors. We do have really good hospitals. The challenge is finding them. Most people judge the quality of a hospital in particular on how many buildings they have, how big the buildings are, how many billboards they have. Speaking of billboards, I'm sure there's people on this listening to this that have seen a billboard on the side of the road that says, our ER wait time is only seven minutes. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were driving down that very same highway with your spouse in the middle of a full-on heart attack, right? are you even going to notice that? No, you're going to go right to the hospital. He's going to be given priority or she's going to be given priority because of the severity of the uh, trauma. That billboard, is meant to do one thing and one thing only, which is induce people to come to the emergency room in non-emergent situations. That is all that it's meant to do. And it works or they wouldn't be spending that money. And because those billboards are typically not just billboards, but they have the little digital counter so they can update the time. That's cost more money, people. Yeah. The bigger the budget, the more the marketing, the bigger the buildings, the average rule is the more affected by these perverse incentives they are, not the less. And so- Showing people quality at these, especially academic centers that people think are great, the Emory's and the Vanderbilt's and, you know, whatever college-based health system, UVA, the list goes on and on. They are typically good at certain things, but they're not good at everything. And you're going in blind, hoping that they're good at what you're going in for without having any knowledge, but you can change that. You really can make a difference. So people who are listening right now, do they talk to their HR person and say, hey, have we ever looked at this? Or do they, uh, who works with you, like HR personnel or? So when we're talking to the employer, we found generally, unfortunately, HR is a bit of an obstacle initially because everyone says, I want the best Blue Cross and Blue Shield I can get. But that's not really what they want. They want the best health care they can get at the most affordable price. Do they really care if that comes from Blue Cross or from an insurance plan that they don't even haven't heard of before? I mean, as long as you're going to see the doctor you trust that you know gives good right. advice, do you care? But we, we tend to intermingle. I think our biggest problem in healthcare in the U.S. is we intermingle the words healthcare and health insurance as though they're one word. If I ask most people on this call, who's your healthcare provider? The number one answer we're going to get is Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Mm-hmm. I try to explain them. Blue Cross and Blue Shield provides zero, literally zero care. Your doctor is your healthcare provider. Your nurse, your pharmacist, those are healthcare providers. And so getting people to start to understand like this is a it's a commodity it's really at the end of the day and we should be wanting to get the highest quality lowest cost we can just like we demand in everything else that we consume and so just ask the right questions so hr back to your question hr tends to be an obstacle initially because all they hear is change different and my employees are begging for better Blue Cross and Blue Shield. They're not begging for something they don't know that's completely different. So typically, our first conversations are with CEOs and CFOs um, because this is partially a financial. But for anyone that has any insight into either the finances of a company or the HR, let me tell you where we get our clients to. It might take a year or two, but we get them to where the health plan is costing so much less that the employer can pay more or sometimes even 100% of it. So we substantially lower or even eliminate what's coming out of the employee's paycheck. And then at the same time, as I mentioned with the MRI example, there's opportunity to get care where your complete deductible and copay and everything is waived. We do it on not just imaging, but surgeries, infusions, dialysis, and monthly medications. We are able to get medications 
for so much less that the employer pays 100% of that. And for some people, they are splitting their pills in half or they're taking their checking their blood sugar yeah. once a day instead of three times a day because they can't afford the monthly cost, even with insurance, of the supplies that they need to buy to do it. So they're going against doctor advice and they are often doing things with their healthcare that is making their situation worse strictly because of financial reasons. And those don't have to happen. Right. Wow. What a gift you're offering people. I mean, truly, I mean, just an amazing blessing. So thank you. Thank you for, for the opportunity. And anyone wants to reach out, um, the best place is probably LinkedIn. I know that's more of a business setting, but if you go to LinkedIn and you put my name in, if you Google my name, luckily, even though my first name is extremely common, my last name, not so much, um, you'll find a bunch of content that we put out there. And, and we're, we, we're on a mission. We want to fix healthcare in the U.S., I got a lot of work to still do, but we want to do it anywhere and everywhere that we can. Yes. Well, again, just thank you for sharing your message with with my audience. And um, I'll be sure everyone to put links to LinkedIn and your website in the show notes. So you can just pop onto the show notes and click on a link and be able to get there. So. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you again for for joining me today and all you're doing. Thank you, Terry. Thank you for the same and for especially for the the trauma victims out there, I hope that they're getting help. And I know that can be a really heavy thing. And so if I can help you find the right providers, I'd be happy to do that. Wonderful. Well, thank you. All right. Well, everyone, thank you for joining us today on the Healing Place podcast. And remember, until next time, be gentle with yourself. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. Terry Welbrock again. Just wanted to thank you for listening to the episode today. And remind you to visit my website as well as the academy.terrywellbrock.com for the courses. But if you go to my website, terrywellbrock.com, you can sign up for my monthly Hope for Healing newsletter, which is also jam-packed with information and strategies and blog pieces and guest blog pieces and links to shows um, and just a great space for, uh, again, healing and hope strategies. Thanks for, again, being here and being a part of this healing space. I very much appreciate you. All right. Bye-bye.